0: I had a fantastic time with Thomas today. We learned about what it's like to start one of the most successful companies in the social media space, what it was like to work with Revolve in such early days, as well as what the top brands in social media are doing on owned media. Remember, if you enjoyed the show, be a friend, tell a friend and subscribe. Thanks guys. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Earned. Today, we have Thomas Rankin, the founder and CEO of Dash Hudson. Welcome to the show, Thomas. Thank you, Connor. I really appreciate you having me. Um, After all this time, we're finally getting to spend some time together. Absolutely. And I think it is long overdue. Um, And for those that don't know you, Um, So obviously, again, founded Dash Hudson. And I think the reason that I invited you guys on is not only do you work with the best brands in the world, um, but a lot of overlap with our clients. So when we ask our clients, you know, what other tools they're using to help them manage social media, uh, Dash Hudson is the number one tool that they're using kind of side by side with us. And so really excited to dive in and, and learn more about your journey, as well as learn more about, you know what you've seen work across brands like, you know, Estee Lauder and Apple and, you know, all those others. Um, So really excited for today.
1: Yeah, same. Excited for the chat and, uh, yeah, and to share some of what we've, I personally have learned and what we've learned as a company over the years.
0: So maybe for those that don't know you, maybe we should kind of start at the top, right? So just what is Dash Hudson? What do you do? Um, And kind of who do you work with?
1: Yeah, so Dash Hudson is the modern social media marketing platform. So we provide the world's most important companies, everybody from Apple to Unilever. We have over a thousand customers globally with tools and analytics to deepen their relationships with global consumers through creative that entertains and brings joy. And so one of the things that has always differentiated Dash Hudson is that we put creative at the center of everything that we do. So while we provide your basic social media tools like content management, scheduling and publishing, um, all of our insights and analytics are truly based around the creative. And so everything starts and stops with helping brands understand what creative is going to work, distributing that creative, analyzing it, and then taking those learnings back into all of their work. So I jokingly say, if you, um, you know, if you loop and you share a TikTok or you join the TikTok maybe buy it movement, Dash Hudson was probably behind that making you do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so uh, I want to actually dive in on that a little bit. So how do you, that sounds like a super difficult problem, right? Understanding how, you know, how a creative asset's going to do, right? Mm -hmm. So what's the, how does that work? What's the kind of magic behind the curtain on that one? Sure. So, it really all started with
1: solving our own problems. So people may not know that prior to what we do now at Dash Hudson, we were actually a consumer shopping application ourselves. And so what I was doing was marketing ourselves on Instagram at the time. So this was back in 2014, 2015. And I really wanted to understand what types of photos and videos were driving Uh, the acquisition of users to our application and what was causing them to then shop within our app. So it was, to me, it was all about who's the person sharing this piece of creative and what type of creative is actually working for me as a marketer at the time. And when that shopping business wasn't working out, we had built this internal analytics dashboard that helped us see how our photos and videos were performing, how influencers were performing for us. And it was really that thing that ended up being the business. So we kind of shined up this internal analytics dashboard that we had. We started showing it to some really smart brand marketers that we knew, and they were just as excited about it as we were because it allowed them to see things that they didn't know. So is this photo driving performance for my brand? Is this video driving performance for my brand? So from the way that our initial analytics platform was built, it all stopped and started with the photo or the video. And so while... Many times brands were just looking at charts and graphs, right? That didn't tell them very much about the creative. And so what we did is if you see our platform, it's photos and videos and the data lives kind of behind it. And, and that really works for the modern marketer. We kind of extended then that, um, that deep knowledge around creative into building our own in-house technology that helps brands to predict the performance of their creative, So we built an AI technology called Vision, really started R&D on it in 2017, commercialized it in 2018. And so what we do is we look at all of a brand's historical performance, we look at what type of creative is performing in the market, and then we built a custom uh, performance prediction algorithm for that brand. So if you're Apple, you've got your own model that predicts your performance. If you're Nike, you've got your own model that predicts your performance. And that really lives throughout the Dash Hudson platform. So just to summarize that quickly, one is we just base everything visually and the way we measure around the photo or the video. And then we've built proprietary technology to help help predict performance.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think two things. One, it really reminds me, your story really reminds me of, um, if you know Stuart, the founder of Slack in a similar yeah. story, right? Where yeah. he, uh, Slack was like originally supposed to be a game. So he's tried to create two different gaming. Yeah, it like, both failed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, in, in the meantime, they built a messaging app just to like mm-hmm. help communication while they were running that game that became Slack. And then prior to that, he was, it was another game. They were helping to manage the kind of photos attached to the character and realized that the photo technology itself was actually the the magic yeah. and Turn that into whatever it was that they sold. The uh, Flickr? Is it Flickr? Yeah, yeah, you got yeah, it. Flicker. Yeah, Flickr. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd be curious about the kind of leap from photo to video mm-hmm. in terms of technology. Yeah. You know, obviously, if you're doing any kind of computer vision stuff, you know, that's a ton of processing power that you're trying to, to put forth. Um, how does that work for video when it's like, I mean, it's incredibly complex as just a concept, right? To understand how a video will perform mm-hmm. versus a photo.
1: Yeah, no. How does, you're, that, how does that work? Yeah, how, you're ab- yeah, you're absolutely correct. So vision, our proprietary technology, really started with the photo and obviously taking uh, one static image and busting it, in, busting it into its pieces with computer vision and then building the learning model around that It's a difficult problem, but video takes it to the next level. And so what we were able to do was kind of port that learning from photo over into video. And what it really started with initially was looking at frames, right? So you're looking at the frames of a video, you're starting to then compare um, the trend of frames within a video to other trends of frames within a video to try and match what types of kind of moments within a video are actually driving the performance. Um, And so, like I said, we could leverage some of that knowledge around photo to start to look at the frames within a video, but then take it kind of to that next level. The other interesting thing that you would know very well um, around video is that oftentimes it's those initial couple of frames that actually drive the view, right? So what's going to make me pause and actually want to watch this thing So we're able to also uh, help brands decide what is that kind of cover image or what is that frame that you actually want to start a video with so that it drives that initial engagement that creates the view. So, um, yeah, I mean, there was an additional two and a half years of research from our uh, data science team that went into bridging from photo to video. And it's still as video evolves so quickly to... TikTok and real style, um, full screen entertainment, that's kind of like another bridge to go beyond just like, say, traditional feed video.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the it's funny the I don't know if you've ever heard Mr. Beast talk about how much time they spend on the cover art for their YouTube videos, right? Because he talks a lot about it. He's like, you know, you go in, you search for something. Is like, if I can get it from 20% of the people to click it, clicking that video to 25%, right? That's a massive increase. Absolutely. And that's all being driven, you know, or primarily being driven by just that little image, right? Just whatever that little kind of initial image is that's trying to catch your attention. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, so let's take a step back to kind of pre-Dash Hudson. So... One, tell me a little bit about what you were doing. I mean, it looks like you were in finance, mm-hmm. you were doing some investing, you know, kind of what that part of your career was like and how that has been beneficial for you now. Um, and then second, you know, what made you decide to want to make the leap into that shopping app in the first place to go from kind of the investor side to the to the entrepreneur side?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to business school, so I did a degree in politics and then decided to do my my MBA. And I, I always joke around that. Like I left business school, not knowing what a business was, Um, (laughs) which is probably true for many people who go to business school. And um, my first, uh, the first part of my career was spent in environmental technology. So I was, you know, really, um, you know, I was really fascinated with what was happening around renewable energy at the time. So this was In kind of 2005, um, you know, technologies were advancing around PV and even wind was still advancing at the time, carbon capture. And um, so I started by working for a government organization here in Nova Scotia, Canada, which is where we're based. And yeah, just got really interested in in that, learning a lot more about climate change and uh, environmental technology, and then ended up being part of setting up and running an environmental technology investment fund. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so I was working directly with um, clean tech companies, um, funding those projects that they were involved with. And it was while doing that, that I kind of started to get my first taste of, what financing and something like venture capital was. And, uh, after working for the government and doing that, um, environmental technology investing for, this was five years. um, I then joined a small venture capital fund here in Halifax. And that fund was really set up to do early stage investing. A lot of it was pre-seed, although we did some seed in series A. So I was looking at all kinds of really early stage stuff, primarily in software. And yeah. it was while meeting some founders of B2B software companies that I started to get a really clear idea of what the opportunity was in B2B software. And it really, really excited me. I decided not to start a B2B software company. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I you wouldn't be Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, but what I saw at the time was that mobile and visual content and shopping were all coming together in the same place. And I thought that Dash Hudson was going to be kind of like the end point of that, where people would come into a mobile app, get inspired through great visual content, and then buy whatever they wanted through, uh, through a single cart. And so I met my co-founder, Tomek, and who's our CTO, and we started to build this mobile shopping product. Um, And I think we weren't necessarily wrong, like that was happening. And you saw, again, Pinterest had really taken off at the time. Again, this is 2013. You saw companies like Fancy and Wanalo and Spring that were all coming up at the time. It's just like, we were trying to do it really lean. None of those companies went lean. They didn't work out, but they certainly didn't go lean. And it was just a really difficult problem to solve, right? like e-commerce is super hard. it was an affiliate business model. Um, consumer mobile was really hard and and uh and so we just couldn't figure it out. But we kind of came across this problem, and thankfully, we ended up getting back into b two b software as kind of an idea. but um it was I still remember that a a mentor of mine when I was pitching him this mobile consumer idea he was like thomas it's a terrible idea he's like if you want to make money if you want to make money sell software to businesses because businesses have problems and businesses have money and
0: i never forgot that uh that piece of advice yeah the nice part about doing business like selling to businesses is you get a really clear like feedback loop right Mm -hmm. and you can like have a conversation you can really like grind it out like you can figure it out Versus consumers, it's like really kind of lightning in a bottle, right? Like, yep. if you get it right, it can explode, but it's so hard to kind of to dial that in, um, especially consumer mobile, right, or consumer internet. Like, you know, the outcomes can be really big, but the you're 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 not you're not swinging at a high high hit rate. Yeah, super
1: tough, super tough. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about what some of the things that are that have been difficult, right? So obviously, you get going, you started the business, it's going. Um, and unless your journey is different than my journey, there's been some hiccups along the way. Um, so what are the, call it two, maybe three things that you like, yeah, those are pivotal moments where I like learned something that's stuck with me.
1: Yeah, I would say number one, I think the reason that we've been successful is that we've built an amazing team, right? And mm-hmm. really proud. What's probably the thing that I'm most proud of is the team that we have built. I would say that, um, and and we still of our initial ten employees, we still have seven of them work on the team at Dash Hudson, which is I think pretty amazing. That and we're now 210 people. Um, wow, nice. But I would say that early on, be it advisors, um, what thankfully all of our investors have been amazing, but you know, some of those people that you surround yourself really early on, you know, and they have a real influence on some of the decisions that you make and, and why you do certain things. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we made early on, which I think everybody goes through, is just there were a couple of people that we surrounded ourselves with who maybe just weren't the best influence on us, or who were maybe kind of trying to take advantage of us. It was pretty minor, but I think you learn you get you only get burned a couple of times, right? And then you're yeah. like, Okay, cool. Like, I probably shouldn't have given away that half point of equity to that person because they didn't do, (laughs) they didn't do anything for me. And then now, every time I look at my cap table, I'm just like, (laughs) "Fuck you." (laughs) Um, Sorry. I hope I can swear on this. But um,
0: oh, go for it. Yeah, uh, but
1: (laughs) I'd say that's one thing. And but I think that's just new entrepreneur kind of um, naivety. Um, So that's number one. I think. Number two um, is, you know, you have this, like, you, in order to be successful, you have to have this, like, unwavering belief in the company you are building and in the product you are building. And yep. yet at the same time, you have to be able to pivot when the right moment comes. So psychologically, that's incredibly difficult, right? To go one moment from having an ultimate faith in the thing that you are building but then the next moment say, I learned this, this thing doesn't work anymore, so I'm gonna go there. And I think that was one of the most difficult things for me was we pivoted so many times in those first few years, but it's really hard on a founding team and it's really hard psychologically to do that. And so I think anytime I speak with founders who are just getting going, I kind of warn, warn them of that. I, you know, You will create a business by moving quickly, trying things, testing it out like Stuart did twice. Um, You have to be okay with change, but just understand that it's going to take a psychological toll on you and take Mm -hmm. a ton of energy out of you. It'll be really exciting, but it's an incredibly difficult uh, time in the formation of a company. And, and I mean, you've managed to create a great company. I've done the same thing. There's so many people who don't crack through that first uh, that first stage. And I think it is because it's so, again, psychologically demanding to get through
0: it. Yeah, for sure. We kind of pivoted too many times. You guys have been, I mean, you're seven years in, you're killing yeah. it. I don't think, have you guys, I mean, I don't want to reveal anything that's non-public or anything, but it doesn't look like you have really raised much money either. You've really just kind of grown it uh, mostly organically, right?
1: So we've done a couple of, um, a couple of kind of rounds of financing. So we did, we're, we haven't been very public about that stuff, but, yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. but that's Just cool. No, so we, we've done your typical kind of angel round early on. We then did a seed round and then we did a series a in 2018. So, but one okay. of the things I'm uh, yeah, so we've kind of, we've, for, based on the scale that we're at right now, we've raised almost no money. Like we're, yeah, for all intents and purposes, bootstrapped, right? Yeah. Um, but with cash in the bank. Um, and one of the things that I would say I'm most proud of is that we've, uh, we've been able to be really efficient in the way that we've grown the company, um, both from like a business model perspective, from the value that we deliver to our customers, and then just financially in terms of the way that we manage it we've been able to, yeah, be incredibly efficient. So we've never had to put ourselves in a situation where we needed money or we've never put ourselves, we've never overrun our headlights in terms of things like valuation or, you know, expectations based on capital raised, um, which has, which has meant we, we hold our destiny in our hands as opposed to it being in the hands of
0: others. Totally. What, I mean, when we got acquired, I think we had raised three million dollars at that point, right? Yeah, we got acquired. It's much. Million, so right, hardly anything. I guess my question would be, what made you decide? Because obviously now you're you're definitely at a scale where you could attract, um, and a growth rate where you could attract some pretty sizable growth equity rounds. Right? Yeah. What makes you decide not to go kind of the that route, or maybe just not yet, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, four four years since your last round. Um, you know, most people would have done it at this. I would. I'd say a lot of people would have done it. What made you yeah. decide not to?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, the last few years have been kind of nuts, right? Like with the yeah. with <laughs> with the pandemic, Is there, and has there been
0: weird stuff that's yeah, happened in the last. Yeah, there's been some years?
1: weird stuff that's happened, and so you know, we we had a pandemic. Um, then you had a weird like boom time, right? And yep, yep. and it's interesting because. We, we've been continuing to grow really well. That boom time came, which would have been the best time to raise money if we were going to do it. Um, yeah. But we were growing well enough that it kind of wasn't like jumping on the radar and like we just weren't quite dialed in on whether or not we wanted to do it. And then things have gotten weird again. So we kind of, have, uh, you know, may, sometimes maybe we're a bit too conservative, to be honest, but mm-hmm. I think the the way that we've deployed capital has been really really smart and we always wanted to wait for the right time to do that significant growth round it's could be something that's in our future um the market is certainly dash hudson's become so much bigger in terms of a product um we're going after i would say a much bigger market now than we did when we were more niche obviously there's a ton of competition in our market um we're growing globally. So there are some obvious reasons for us to consider doing that, but we, um, we're just really, we're just really conscious of timing on that stuff. And so, um, and so that time hasn't quite hit yet, <laughs> And yeah, uh, sure. but yeah, we continue to grow. So we kind of don't panic about it. We just, we kind of, we're very careful, maybe a bit too conservative sometimes.
0: Hey, you know it's uh, like you said, you hold your own destiny, and I think that uh, you know the the analogy I always liked was a guy named Michael Deering, who's like a well known seed investor, um, was a former exec at uh, eBay, and the, the way he described it, he's like, you know, if you have a tissue box and it's full of tissues, it's like you know, you use two, like, but if you're down to one tissue, you like split it in half, maybe even <laughs> split it again, right? Like, and so um, you know, it forces you to be a lot more efficient, right? One hundred percent constraints uh is it constraints force creativity or whatever yep. that phrase is
1: constraints are good um
0: so you mentioned there kind of the market right so the market we're going mm-hmm. after is big and i know for us one of the most pivotal moments we had as a company was figuring out who our clients worked right yeah so and um, what we figured out about four years ago at tribe was you know if you're getting three tweets a week like we're not we're not very valuable mm-hmm. right um, to the point that if you had less than 50,000 followers on Instagram, we had a 90% chance of churning you within two years, yes. right? And if you flipped that, our retention rates were really, really good, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, where um, where you're going to get valued as a software company. So for you guys, have you gone through that? Like, how do you think about your market? Like, what you're going after? Who your customers are? Um, is that something that you've thought about? Um, you know, I would have to imagine you have, but if so, what? how do you think about that? Yeah.
1: So, I mean, as you would know, again, early on, you kind of just take whoever's going to pay you money, right? I mean, <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I mean, that's what we're all, we were really excited and we had this great product and you kind of like, whoever will pay us money for it, we'll take it. Um, yeah, yeah. And then over time you start to hone in on who your ideal customer or what your ideal customer profile is. and I, And yeah. for us, we've continued to kind of We went through a a long period of really continuing to tighten that just to be, again, going back to our philosophy of trying to be efficient. We said, like, let's really squeeze who we're going after and direct all of our resources into that. So we know that we're getting the best customers and the best users from inside of that narrow kind of target market. And so for Mm. us, it was industries. For us, it was company size. For us, it was the composition of a marketing team presence on social like we really narrowed it and put all of our marketing and sales development energy into that um so we kind of were like you know shotgun approach and then just kind of slowly started to narrow it especially as we continue to push up market which is again why we've got the amazon and apples of the world um as customers um and i think that you yet i think as you get to a certain scale you st- you have to kind of stay, take a step back and say, okay, we've done a really good job kind of going after this really narrow uh, type of customer. But in order to be a really big SaaS company, you do need to be able to address a couple of different segments, whatever that looks like and however you define it. So I would say mm-hmm. at Dash Hudson, one of the things that we're just starting to give ourselves the freedom to do is to look at multiple segments. And so mm. I think that's really exciting because we feel as though the product is in the right place to be able to do that, um, that the pricing and packaging is getting to a point which will enable to do us to do that. The service model is starting to be set up to do that. So while they have different economic profiles, those segments, we feel like we're mm-hmm. starting to drill in on how we can serve, uh serve at, at least two segments at the same time.
0: Yeah, I haven't quite latched on to the economics around you kind know, of either lower price point or freemium or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to segment that. Um just because, you know, the churn characteristics are going to be so high, ACV will be low, service models different, going down markets tough, right? But um that's really cool. That's fun to hear. Yeah. And for,
1: and for us, like we're, we, we put all of our resources into enterprise, right? Like global enterprise. And what we've done yet organically, we've attracted lots of what we call mid-market companies and, but didn't provide a lot of flexibility in terms of how A, we marketed to them or B, how we priced and packaged for them. So for us, it's like a segment that was already coming to us, but we just weren't like doing our best job of of addressing that segment. So it, it's a down market from enterprise to mid market, but we don't serve SMB and we don't do anything. We're still priced to a premium. It's just being more flexible with those mid market customers.
0: Yeah. Well, in a lot of ways, I think the product that you've built is something that doesn't, it's not it's been designed for that type of customer.
1: Exactly. So. Yeah. It's a power tool, right? There's a lot in our platform that is just like way too much for a small business. Like you, it's, it's like wanting to, you know, just drive to the grocery store and jumping in a Ferrari, you know, it's like, it doesn't it really doesn't really make any sense. It's like, you know, take the, take the minivan.
0: Yeah, totally. So let's go back to, you described your kind of initial (laughs) sales approaches, shotgun, right? But let's talk about just how did you, so for people that are just starting their companies, I think that one of the, um, you kind of have two problems, right? Either how do I build a product that people are going to actually like use and like, and the other one is like, how do I actually get them to pay attention to me? Because there's so much noise, right? There's so Mm -hmm. much um, out there that is trying to attract people's attention. Turns out we're not the only B2B software companies trying to sell to marketers. Mm -hmm. So how did you kind of get your first call it 25, 50 customers, you know, what did that process look like? What, um, what uh, tools or methods did you find worked really well?
1: Yeah. So I love telling some of these stories to my team now because it's like, it's not like you're trying to say back in the day, but it's more like, this is how hard it is to get customers. Right. Um, so, yeah. So to be honest, like I would built some relationships with brands while we were doing the shopping thing. Um, so I at least had people to talk to about what we were building and I could get their feedback on it. So while I wasn't necessarily trying to sell it to them, I had real potential customers who could give me that feedback. But one of the first things that we did was we built lists. So we, we outsourced like We kind of found a list of all the brands that we felt were our ICP at the time. We outsourced it to Odesk, right? Which was Odesk at the time. Um, We had contact lists get built. We had somebody come in and set us up with HubSpot as a CRM. And then we just started doing each of us. So there were three of us, myself included, who started just doing outbound, right? Like outbound email campaigns all day, every day starting in, I guess it was August, middle of August, 2015. And yeah. I would say by the, the first week of September, we started to get responses back and started to have conversations. And there was just this really rapid kind of learning process that we went to as we started to, you know, fine tune the pitch, hear what types of things that people needed in a product in order to buy it. Like, thankfully, like my co-founder and our initial development team were just like they could literally turn kind of like a a light version of a feature around over a weekend like we were just kind of like you need that boom we'd come out with it we'd put it in a pitch deck we'd build it and then we'd demo it um it would only work half the time but you know we would get it there (laughs) if they decided to buy it when they decided to buy it but those so yeah it was just a lot of like emailing people to be honest but there were a few brands at the time that i was really into because of the way that they were marketing, one was um, Revolve, which is still a customer of ours. So at the time, they were—you would know them well. They're like—they've cr- crushed it for years in the influencer yep. marketing space. They were really just doing the kind of like slam the gram approach back in 2015. <laughs> they did like Revolve in the Hamptons and like all that kind of stuff. It was like this stuff is mad. And I actually wrote it. I think. Before they were customer, I wrote a couple of blogs about them just because I was so fascinated by what, by what they were doing from a marketing perspective. But Risa Gerona, who's the chief brand officer at Revolve now, I just kept sending her emails, and I think one of them was like they—I think it was October or November that year. Like Revolve did their Christmas party, and it was like yeah. a very Instagrammable Christmas party. And yeah. at the same time, the same weekend, the Minkoffs opened their uh, Rodeo Drive store and they made it like an Instagrammable event. And we looked at like the reach of those two events and Revolves Christmas Party like crushed the Minkoff store opening. And so I wrote, <laughs> wrote Rice an email that like you beat the, like 350 million or something, you beat the Minkoffs. Um, yeah. And she finally responded to me and that was like the 20th email I'd sent her or something. So Revolve was one of our first customers and yeah, continue to be a great customer to this day. Glossier was another brand that I was fascinated by. They were kind of just getting going at the time, really leading the charge from a D2C perspective. Um, I had seen uh, Henry Shandling speak at the uh, conference in in New York and I, uh, I was just fascinated by what he was saying. So I tweeted him, like I was in the audience and I tweeted him and said, Oh, fascinated by what you're doing. Like, we've done some research on you. I would love to share it. And he got back to me on Twitter. And I set up a meeting with him. And we had kind of looked at what they were doing as a brand. And he loved what we were doing. And he loved us as a team. And so they came on. But then like, I think the the one that I'm probably most proud of was Condé Nast. So Condé Nast was one of our first customers across all the major brands. Again, this was like within our first five customers, I think was Condé Nast. And we, um, I had a contact who got us in front of the right people. We got in there, we showed them the product. They were like, this is amazing, but they were going through a procurement process and we were coming in at like the back end of this procurement process. So we thought we weren't going to make it through, but the team there really liked us. And I, I called a mentor of mine. I'm like, we've got this great opportunity, but it looks like we're going to get locked out because there's a procurement process. And he's like, forget the procurement process, just get in there, get people using your product, walk from desk to desk, make them love it, and you're going to win. And so (laughs) we honestly, so my, my colleague, Mariana, and I, we basically got a badge for the Condé offices in New York, we went in there, and we just forced them to pilot essentially, and like manually onboarded (laughs) everybody. And lo and behold, we didn't have to go through procurement, but we won the deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep, and so, yep. I mean, I, those are that's like three examples, but I think TLDR, it's just hustle, man. That was all it was, just like oh, pulling totally. out all the stuff, being like looking for those great customers who were forward thinking, who got what we do, but then
0: just hustling your way to get
1: in front of them, and then believing in your product.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love that. It's funny that observation <laughs> on the RFP process because, like we get put into these RFP processes all the time. And it's like, if our, if people are using, like, it's like, we'll get feedback from the procurement team. Like, Ooh, you've got to have China. And it's like, like, otherwise we're just not going to choose you. I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, there's like 150 people at your company using our software. So like, I don't think they're just going to like suddenly want to stop using it, you know? And if, and, and I think it's like, if you just get people in it and using it, that's kind of the most important factor, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and I love that uh, the, uh, that's, you know, really reminiscent of the like doing things that don't scale motto, right? Yeah. Like the, the Airbnb, like they went around and took photos of people's houses. Cause people didn't have enough good photos. there's was like a take a photo button on the website. Um, yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. And I think the funny thing about those, so the, the revolves of the world, we didn't start working with them that early. We started working with them maybe three years ago, I think. And, uh, but I think the most fascinating part about working with companies like that or a glossier is they're so far ahead of the curve that like if you just observe what they're doing and what they think is important, you know inevitably the brands that are slower adopters will catch up, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know revolves creating billions of dollars worth of uh, of market capitalization doing it. So like um that was a really that was a process that worked really well for us, too, um generally.
1: Yeah. And what we've found, the key is, I, we've always believed in building for the early adopters because we want to be innovators yeah. in our market. And the the tension for us has always been as we've gotten bigger, you know, cus- as you build more, customers demand more of the like blocking and tackling <laughs> stuff, like the day-to-day kind of, bless you, the day-to-day, yes. um, <laughs> they demand more of the day-to-day kind of features, right? Like the kind of boring stuff, but it's the stuff that they need. But you're not by putting your energy into that you're not building for the innovators so we've always said it's our job to run this dual track of build stuff people need but innovate at the same time and make Mm -hmm. sure that we're putting kind of putting our necks on the line to build things that we don't necessarily know are going to work but that the most innovative customers are telling us is important to them and That's, you know, we've always tried to balance those those two things. So we're always looking for that kind of like that next cohort of innovators that we can kind of work with to build what everybody else is going to use in a couple of years.
0: Yeah. Talking about those innovative brands, I mean, I know that, you know, a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are brands, right? That's going to be kind of the majority yes. of people listening in. Um, so what have you noticed about the revolves of the world and others that has, you know, um, been a consistent signal for success like what are they doing differently when it comes to particularly owned social that is or creative that's that's winning
1: yeah um so it's really interesting and we see it across both very large global brands and we see it with you know i hate the term d2c now it seems like it has bad vibes attached to it but like more modern e-commerce brands right yeah Yeah, yeah, so whether it's you know, Nike with Jumpman or it's Hydro. Like the thing that ties those companies together is that they really care about communicating creatively and visually and entertaining an audience, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the brand and the relationship with the customer is just like core to what they do. And they hold that very sacred and they, but they're but they're also um, they're also innovators and data driven. So they're they mm-hmm. want a tool, and they want to set their teams up for success so that they have the insights to ensure that brand creative is as impactful as it possibly can be. So the teams that um, the team the brands that we find are most successful in this kind of like new world of what we're talking about as social entertainment are ones that, A, are understand it from a creative perspective. Um, mm-hmm. So want to communicate with their consumer through those medium. Two, are resourcing it. So they're either building specific teams to work on this type of creative um, or they're retaining an agency to help them with that. The best ones do it in-house, not with agencies. Um, yep. And then three, using they're using... The yeah, yeah, and then and then the three is they're using data to make decisions, whether it's us or you guys or some other platform, right? Um, but everything yep. is really data driven, and and then they're from a senior executive point of view, typically the CMO or the VP of marketing, they're willing to take risks, and I think the brands that are being most successful in this world of modern social marketing typically have a CMO or a VP that's going to resource their teams and enable them to take risks and trust them to figure it out because with new channels, what you put into it typically is what you're going to get out of it. And, um, and I think that's, that's, that evolves over time. Not every brand kind of continually evolves with the changing times of social media, but the best ones continue to kind of invest
0: yeah, I was interviewing Toto, who's this uh, SVP of marketing at Benefit Cosmetics. And uh, he was saying, he's like, I expect 75% of our creative to fail. He's like, that's what I expect, mm-hmm. like 75% mm-hmm. failure rate. Um, and he's like, and you know, 25% is going to hit. And of that, you know, a smaller percentage is going to like really hit. And he's like, and that's okay. Like, I want my team to feel comfortable doing that. That's awesome. Um, so that makes a ton of sense. Um, so something I want to dive in on, you know, and this is, a very, <laughs> this is a very boom and bust thing, right, is TikTok. So, you know, obviously for you guys, I think when we first got to know you guys, you know, uh, Instagram was the primary channel, right? You yeah. had YouTube, you had other channels, but that was a big thing, and I think that's one of the things that you guys got really well known for. Yes. Um, you know, obviously for a lot of our brands, you know, TikTok's become the, you know, the soup du jour, the, the you know thing at the moment for, for good reason. Um, how have you guys kind of... Um, thought about the TikTok space, one, from a product Mm -hmm. perspective, and then two, we talked a little bit about video earlier, but just, you know, how have you seen it affect their strategies? And then what have you seen across kind of winning strategies when it comes to TikTok as well?
1: Yeah. So I guess it would have been probably a year and a half ago that brands consistently started to bring up questions about TikTok, right? And a lot of it was, you know, what are you seeing on TikTok? What are other brands doing on TikTok? What are you hearing? Um, We're thinking about making TikTok part of our strategy for this year. And so it just started to continue to pop up. And obviously we were monitoring it and seeing what was happening and watching brands that were being successful. And so about 18 months ago, we decided, okay, this is gonna happen and this is gonna be big, right? Like it's clear that yeah. the trajectory here is real and we haven't seen anything like this throughout the life of our company. And so we started thinking a lot about it, what it meant to marketers, and we started to build a relationship with the team at TikTok. So last week um, we were announced as an official TikTok marketing partner, which is super exciting. So yeah. um, we're building on the TikTok Business Insights API, We um, started working with the partner team last summer and we started building out alphas and betas in August of last year. So we kind of had a long period of time where we got to work really closely with the team at TikTok and with our brands to kind of figure out what it is that brands were going to need to be successful as they really kind of either get going or start to kind of measure their success in those early innings. And I think for us getting in early with the team at TikTok was really important because it meant that we could take direct learnings from our customers to inform what they were building in the API, which then of course fed back into the product that we were able to create. So um, so that's really exciting. From a product standpoint, we um, were able to launch um, insights, community, and scheduling and publishing. We also did a a couple of more innovative features kind of outside of the um, kind of like the traditional functionality. We're doing some editorialization in product around trending sounds, which is really exciting. Teams obviously have such a hard time keeping on top of trending sounds. And then we built something called the entertainment score, which looks at the performance of a video essentially disconnected from views because virality on TikTok is such a weird thing. Um, and not necessarily the best strategy for brands and so many views that you get if you do go viral are just meaningless because it's just appearing on somebody's feed and they're not actually watching it. So it's kind of like, um, effectiveness or, but it's a score that's kind of built specifically for TikTok. So anyway, that's a lot about the product, but, um, we've been spending a lot of time on the product, excited to kind of have that fully out now in the
0: market but the trending sounds thing is fascinating by the way it's um you know i was talking to we had an event in new york and i was talking to one of the bartenders and he was a musician and he had listened to a panel we had done and uh and he was like yeah he's like you know he's like we should connect like like music plays or tiktok plays a huge role for the music business now Mm -hmm. right because like you're trying to get to be one of the trending songs on TikTok. Because mm-hmm. It helps you to get discovered, and to, it's just fascinating. I just hadn't thought about that as a concept, and it's like, whoa! Like the imbe- or like TikTok Radio on XM Sirius is like mm-hmm. the number one station by far, and like it's just crazy. Um, it's pretty wild,
1: anyway. and the yeah. sound, and you know, the sound pay- plays a really important part in how the algorithm delivers you content on TikTok, right? Mm. So, you know, because they're looking at the style of the video but they're also looking at sound and when they're building you your personalized algorithm they're also looking at your engagement with sound right because they know that if you're going through a sound you're looking for other videos that are like that built on that sound then it may also be an indication that you're looking to create content around that sound so the signals that TikTok uses to deliver us all content it's just totally different from what you would see in the the kind of more traditional social graph on on facebook so yeah and, and it's so funny like so any of the brands that are listening to this i'm sure you feel this pain um we always ask brands like hey how are you figuring out what sounds are trending and how do you as a team kind of start to decide what sounds or trends you may be able to participate in and literally it's just everybody looking at their own feeds and like sharing it in Slack. <laughs> and then there's always a senior marketer who says, like, you know, like so and so's feed is way cooler than mine. You know, it's like it's it's like again, it's like Instagram back in the day where you kind of made like the intern like the the
0: person who yeah, ran the yeah, Instagram.
1: Yeah. Now it's like the sound trends are kind of downloaded to the younger members of the team. But um, but yeah, so we've done some work actually on with our team. Again, this is not our trending sounds feature is not algorithmic it's editorialized based on a bunch of data um but yeah but it's been an incredibly popular feature and it's only been out for a couple weeks so it's a big it's a big problem
0: to solve and i think there's a lot more work to do around sound this is just scratching the surface yeah for sure it's fascinating um i think the uh looking at somebody else's tiktok is like a deeply personal experience (laughs) Like if you go to somebody else's, it's like, oh, these are like your deepest, darkest interests, like the yeah, things you totally. talk about, but you love yeah, watching. Yeah. Like you know,
1: I feel like everybody's feed becomes more reasonable over time, right? Like I, <laughs> I, do. I think if you're just delving into TikTok for the first time, TikTok's gonna blast you with a bunch of stuff just to see like what grabs you. But well, you mean, like, I think everybody becomes more normal on TikTok I, over time. Either definitely. that or you just become really weird and niche, but that's that's cool too, right?
0: But yeah. They're definitely like uh testing you, right? Like I remember they were sending me a bunch of anime content. I'm like, why am I getting so much anime content? And like nothing against anime, I just don't watch it personally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then so I was like, so then now it's like when I see something that I don't like, I try and flip really quickly. I'm like, no, 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 don't show me more of that. Like yeah. I don't wanna <laughs> I um, mean, the
1: coolest thing about TikTok is, you know, it was purpose built for that, right? Like, the, it's, they can call it the content graph as opposed to the social graph. And it's, you know, all the signals are um, gathered to get you content you actually want to see.
0: Yeah. So let's do, uh, we'll do one fun end of show question. to sure. Wrap up. And uh, I'm actually going to switch it up just based on this this topic. So if I were to be, look into your TikTok, <laughs> what would be two or three kind of categories, big categories that show mm-hmm. up in your TikTok?
1: Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this is so corny, but golf. <laughs> I love to golf. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's like such a trope now is
0: like everybody got into golf over the pandemic. But I, uh, I love Do You have the Spanish golfer guy. Does he show up for you? Like the? No, uh, mine are
1: usually like either swing tips or like fails it's usually one or the other okay um, okay. everybody loves a bad shot tracer so so yeah so golf um there's some really like weird i'm um, canadian canadian humor like do you know the mounties are like our rcmp or like your I don't know state troopers kind of thing there's some really weird like funny like canadian humor around mounties and stuff that are out there and just like (laughs) canadians like from the the country and like i love that stuff like just anything kind of dorky like that i i absolutely love but yeah a lot of it is uh a lot of it is yeah sport and weird canadian humor i would say and then like talk show clips that would be the other thing because i don't actually get a chance to watch the talk shows at night we have children yeah um don't do that anymore but so i love that i can
0: get like the kimmel clips on uh on tiktok i think this is the best part about tiktok like i don't those not i don't think any of those three types of videos have ever shown up in my feed
1: yeah right? there but you like
0: go. but like everybody has their own mix of like weird stuff <laughs> I also you don't get the it, weird like, kind of you don't
1: get the weird mountie jokes you mean
0: <laughs> i don't but it also rotates topics like at one point i was getting a lot of dark humor stuff and then that kind of stopped i'm like where did that go like i i don't know yeah. but uh now it's like a lot of existential stuff i'm like am i having an existential crisis like what's going on like i don't think i am but it's shown me a lot of this stuff and i'm watching it and i don't know you got a busy um, life
1: man you got a busy life, so.
0: Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this. I know I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody else learned a lot as well. And uh, I wish you continued success uh, as Dash continues to kill it.
1: Thank you. And, uh,
0: and thanks again, Thomas.
1: Yeah, you bet. And, and to you as
0: well. Um,
1: thanks so much for having me. For sure.
0: Be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at CreatorIQ.com.